Everyone's relaxed now. But it is not time to sleep. A Christian businessman is driving down the freeway and he's passing a semi and all of a sudden little unknown to him and the semi driver, there's a malfunction in the steering and the semi should just swerve to the left and kill him, but it doesn't happen. And he passes by and goes on his way. Or a mother is uh, backing out of her driveway and uh, there are other kids in the neighborhood and Unbeknownst to her, there is a little four-year-old boy just crouched down looking at ants right behind her car. And she doesn't see the boy, and all of a sudden the boy is on the grass, and she backs out, and the boy's safe and grows up to be a preacher. Or a student is uh, taking some test, and there is some unseen forces helping him get just the grade he needs to get in order to get to a university where somebody's going to share the gospel with him, and he's going to come to the Lord. Now you think about things. Do things like that really happen? Well, when you look in the pages of Scripture, you see a lot of different examples of a lot of different things. And... You see angels guarding people, angels as protectors, angels as visitors, angels as executioners, as rescuers, as gatherers, even as fast food deliverers. And we've been studying the gospel of Luke and our next text is going to be the Gerizim demoniac in Luke chapter 8 verses 26 through 39. I thought, you know, it would be good before we get into that text which talks about demons and demon possession to really stop and just do a little series on angels and demons and Satan and just kind of get it all out of the way so that uh, if people have questions after that, we can say, well, you can listen to the series. And then we can expedite everything else a little bit quicker. Instead of trying to do an incomplete job every, at every passage we come to that mentions angels or demons. But last week we learned that the world is obsessed with demons and Satan and the supernatural. And what is amazing is, is that the TV programs are just, they're just proliferating um, things about demons and Satan. And movies and books and magazines, they're just talking about Satan and demons and angels all the time. The problem is, is they're teaching lies about all these things. And it is odd that Satan, who is actively lobbying against the notion that there is a God, that he is a sovereign God, and that he sent his only begotten son to earth to die on the cross uh, to save sinners by grace, having furnished proof by raising from the dead is at the same time, while he's lobbying at trying to just totally eradicate God from our country and from the world, is at the same time promoting with a vengeance demons, angels, and supernatural phenomena. Distorted views thereof. That are incorrect. That are false. And a lot of Christians think, well, that's not, you know, affecting me. You know, I see these things. I maybe watch some things, but it's not affecting my view. But last week we took a quiz and some of you discovered otherwise. As a matter of fact, some of you were still trying to convince me that I must be wrong. You know, the cherubim and seraphim, they're angels. You know, where's the verse? Well, there's got to be a verse in there somewhere. Well, there might be. 
but I just couldn't find it with, you know, the best Bible software money can buy. Now, it might be there. I, you know, I, I looked for every cross-reference, and they may be angels. All I'm saying is the Bible doesn't call them that. And when you start looking at things from the world's perspective, then you start thinking the Bible's wrong. But listen, the Bible is the only authoritative source on angels and demons and Satan and the supernatural. All the other sources have to come under the foot of the Bible, not the other way around. And so why we're doing this series is to just kind of prepare you to understand what the scriptures say so that as the last times progress and Satan is coming on the scene when he's trying to educate the whole world in false views about these things, you will not be deceived. You'll know what's right so that you will not be led astray. So this morning we're going to examine several different ministries of angels as described in the Bible so you can better understand what angels do, why they do what they do, and their relationship to your life and the whole world of unbelievers so that when you're encountering these false views in the world, you'll go, nah, that's not what the Bible says. And you won't be led astray. The first thing we want to do is we want to look at angels minister to And on behalf of God, if you turn to Genesis three, again, we went there last week, just we're going to be looking at some of these texts multiple times just from different angles. But if you look at Genesis three, as you're getting there, I'll just remind you what's happened. God's created everything at the end of chapter one, verse 31. Everything's very good. Chapter two talks about the creation of man. Chapter three, evil is now um, existing in God's creation. So somewhere between very good in the end of chapter one and chapter three, which is probably a very short time. Now evil has been introduced into God's creation. Satan has rebelled and now he is after um, mankind in order to spoil God's plan. And of course, uh, if we remember what happened, um, God told Adam before that, you know, you can eat of any tree if you want, uh, but of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you, you shall not eat. Well, so Satan says, well, God doesn't want you to eat that. Uh, that tree, that's the tree I'm going to try and trick you into eating. And so he deceives Eve uh, in the form of a serpent. He talks to her, gets her to take of the tree. She willingly, after eating, gives to her husband. Adam Lee rebels against the covenant that God had made. And then we have sin entered into the world. Adam and Eve then both, uh, realizing they're naked, uh, cover themselves with fig leaves. God comes walking along and said, hey, uh, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? And uh, Adam then is quick to blame Eve and God. It was the woman you gave me. Uh, and then it, Eve was quick to blame the serpent. It was the serpent. He deceived me. And of course, God then deals out consequences uh, for their sin. And then the, the Trinity, the triune Godhead, then has a little discussion. And this is what we read in Genesis 3, 22 and 24. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. 
The point I want to make here is this is the first place we see in the Bible where God dispatches some sort of angelic creature. Here it's a cherubim. Again, we don't know if they're angels or not. The Bible doesn't say, but we're going to include cherubim and seraphim in our discussion because I don't know how else to categorize them. But yeah, here they are, two of them at least. They're cherubim. There's, there's, uh, whenever you have a Hebrew word and you have the im ending on there, cherubim early, um, that tells you it's plural. So there are more than one cherubs uh, here and they are guarding the way to the tree of life so that man will not eat of the tree of life and then live forever in a state of sin so we see them working for god here to be guards in psalm 103 verse 20 the psalmist writes bless the lord you his angels mighty in strength who perform his word obeying the voice of his word That is just kind of a summary statement of what angels do. Angels are mighty in strength and they obey God's voice. They obey his word. Now what's interesting is, can you think of any other intelligent creatures that are called to do the same thing? Us. We are called to do the same thing that angels are called to do. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, this is the vision that Isaiah has, and uh, we looked at this also last week. We're just going to look at verses 2 and 3. Isaiah is explaining this incredible vision he had where these seraphim, these six-winged creatures, are ministering to God around his throne. And this is what he writes in verse 2 and 3. Seraphim stood above him. Each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what's interesting is, is right after that, these creatures say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And after that, they say the same thing. And after that, they say the same thing. And always before the throne of God, there are these incredible creatures who keep reminding everybody who gets near the throne that this is a holy, holy, holy God. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Turn over to Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation 4 and 5, there's kind of a heavenly scene going on where... John, who is at the island of Patmos, is allowed to see what's going on in heaven. So this is kind of a big worship session going on in heaven. In Revelation 4, 8, we read this. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. Look down at Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Look at what we read here in verse 11 and 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What are these angels doing here? They're worshiping God. They're worshiping God. 
Now, isn't it interesting that angels are called to obey God and worship God, just like we are? As a matter of fact, when we get to heaven, we are going to worship God and obey God, just like the angels. It's not like the angels are sitting around waiting for the second coming so they can do something. They are now obeying God. They are now worshiping God. And we're going to be doing the same thing that they're doing in heaven now. Now, what about ministry, though? Their ministry to believers. This is, begins to get really fascinating. What about you? What about me? What about other believers? How are angels ministering to people today who know Christ? Well, if you look uh, in books or there's a whole bunch of popular sites just because of all the uh, um, movies and things and TV programs about angels, there's all sorts of internet sites that talk about this guy. There's all sorts of stories and many of them are very kind of you know, trite and flippant and self-serving. But some of them are, you know, could be true. I, I've known people, a couple of people who said they, they thought they had angelic counters and, you know, they, they seemed legitimate. I have no way of telling. But one thing is abundantly clear. Angels minister to people. And you may not know that they minister to you, but if you are a believer, they are. They are. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, God speaking to Moses tells Moses, I am going to send my angel before you. And so when they went through the wilderness, they had an angelic escort. Think of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. You remember the story of how he's slew the the prophets uh, uh, Carmel, the prophets of Baal, and and then Jezebel, the wicked queen, got mad, and then she was, you know, going to chase him down and kill him, and he got all freaked out, which was kind of strange. He stood up against all these false prophets, and one woman gets mad. He runs for his life. (laughs) But anyways, he runs for his life. He's scared to death. He's sitting there despairing for life. And what happens? Fast food delivery. Angel shows up, angel food cake, and he eats that food and then he goes on the strength of that food for 40 days, the scriptures say. Think of the prophet Daniel who had angels visit him and tell him about his visions of the future. Think of Zachariah who had the same thing. Think of Joseph and Mary who had angels visit them and Peter who was freed from prison by an angel. Think of those women who came to the tomb and saw the angel. The angels are sprinkled all the way through scripture and they're ministering to people in different ways. We can't look at all the the places because there'd be too many. But if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 18, there's a very fascinating verse there. There, It's really the only one of its kind. A lot of times people come up and they'll say things like, Jack, do you think that, uh, you know, people have guardian angels? Well, in this text, Jesus is talking about those who cause believers to stumble. And he describes them as little ones in verse 10. He says this, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, notice what the text says. Their angels. What does that tell you? It seems to tell you that believers have an angel assigned to them. 
Now, this is just amazing when you start pondering the consequences of that you might have an angel. Of course, when you become a junior higher, the angels can't handle it anymore, so they're reassigned. (laughs) Just seeing if you're listening. But the verse does say that people seem to have angels. This is the only verse like it. You have an angel assigned to you. What do they do? I don't know. But they're assigned, and I'm sure they're assigned for a purpose. And I'm sure that when you die or Christ comes back, you're going to know what they did. And you're probably going to find out for all eternity just what they have done. Jesus, speaking of the time of his coming in Matthew 24:31, says, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from before winds from one end of the sky to the other. This is talking about the end of the tribulation. The people who have come to Christ during the tribulation, those people will who have made it to the end, to the second coming of Christ when he returns, those people will apparently be able to see the angels which have been ministering all along on their behalf, which they couldn't see. Now those angels are going to deliver them in their mortal bodies to Jerusalem. Now think about that. It reminds me of Peter Pan and Tinkerbell. You know, where, you know, the fairy shows up and sprinkles pixie dust on them so they can fly away to never, ever land. Never, never land, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, but just no fairies and no pixie dust. Instead, holy angels. Not never, never land, but Jerusalem. That's what the scriptures ta- talk about. They tell us that's going to happen. In Luke chapter 15, verse 10, we learn about another kind of ministry angels have in relationship to believers. And this is uh, kind of fun. This is at uh, right after Jesus gives the parable of the lost coin. You remember the parable, the person loses the coin, sweeps around, tries to find it. And when they find it, they rejoice. And then Jesus says this, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, what does that tell you? Angels know what's going on down here. They know when someone comes to Christ. You know, there's probably no better narcotic than leading somebody to the Lord. Uh, Elk hunting's close. (laughs) But I just want you to know, when you, when you are there and you're you lead somebody to the Lord when God is pleased to have you share the gospel with somebody and they actually want to listen and they believe and they give their life to Christ right then in front of you. It is amazing. It is wonderful. It's thrilling. And it just makes you want to go talk to somebody else. Because it's so great that that person right there in front of your face has given their life to Christ. And you're now going to be with them forever in heaven. That God has done a miracle right before your eyes. And it just makes you rejoice. Well, guess what? The angels do the same thing. They're in there going, yeah! Get on, Jesus! Yeah, they're rejoicing too. They rejoice just like you would rejoice. The angels in heaven over even one sinner who repents. In Luke chapter 16, there's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Most of us know the story. Uh, The rich man is, you know, living in opulence and stuffing his face and neglecting the poor. Uh, Lazarus is the poor man outside. The dogs are licking his wounds. But then they both die. 
And Jesus makes this comment in Luke 16:22. Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom and the rich man also died and was buried. Now what's interesting is in this story it says when Lazarus dies angels appear and they escort him to this place called Abraham's bosom. The the rich man he just dies. But there is this angelic escort that happens with Lazarus. Now, what you need to realize is this is a time before Jesus had died and rose again. So this is the Old Testament era. In the Old Testament era, everybody who died went to a place called Sheol, or the grave, the place of the dead. And in Sheol, according to this story, this parable, or we don't know if it's a... A story or a parable, there's disagreement about it. But in the story, what happens is, is there's a, uh, there's two different places. There's a place where the rich man is. He is in agony in these flames. And he is crying out because he can see across what is called this chasm, which no one can cross over, Abraham explains. And there's Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham enjoying peace and comfort. And here's the rich man across the chasm in agony and flames. Well, we don't know for certain because things have changed now. When Christ died, he emptied out Sheol of its believers. And now when we die, we go to be with the Lord. But it very uh, very, uh, well may be that when you die, you know, you're pining away in that hospital bed or let's just make it a better thing. You're preaching the gospel to somebody. And just as they say, yes, I want to give my life to Christ. And you lead them to to Christ and you pray with them. And all of a sudden... Oh, you hit the, you hit the pavement. Okay, that's it. You know, your final deed was sharing the gospel. Well, the moment you quit living here on earth, you wake up. And who's there? Angels. Hey, we've been waiting to meet you. Or we've been waiting for you to meet us. And you've been a handful. (laughs) And there are these angels who have been with you your whole life who have not only been with you but have been with other saints who have existed from the time of creation and witnessed all of history those angels are there we have somebody who wants to meet you i mean can you didn't that that's cool that is way neat i can't wait for that every time i do a funeral i can't wait for that I do a funeral, it's like, man, I can't wait to die. I want to see the angels. I want to see Christ. I want to see the saints of all the ages. I long for that. I would just, just any time. And no one has captured this whole thought better than John Bunyan. John Bunyan, when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, at the end of the book, when Christian and Hopeful finally make it across the river of death... Bunyan writes this, Now upon the bank of the river on the other side they saw the two shining men who were waited for them. Wherefore, being come out of the water, they saluted them, saying, We are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those that shall be heirs of a salvation. Thus they went along towards the gate. Now you must note that the city stood upon a mighty hill. But the pilgrims went up that hill with ease because they had these two men lead them up by the arms. 
They had likewise left their mortal garments behind them in the river. For though they went in with them, they came out without them. They therefore went up here with much agility and speed, though the foundation upon which that city was framed was higher than the clouds. They therefore went up through the region of the air, sweetly talking as they went, being comforted because they safely got over the river and had such glorious companions to attend them. The talk that they had with the shining ones was about the glory of the place who told them that the beauty and glory of it was inexpressible. There, said they, is Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels and spirits of just men made perfect. You are going now, they said, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of its never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall have white robes given you and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower region upon the earth to wit sorrow, sickness, affliction and death for the former things are passed away. You are going now to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob And to the prophets, men that God hath taken away from the evil to come, and that are now resting upon their beds, each one walking in his own righteousness. The men then ask, well, what must we do in that holy place? To whom it was answered, you must there receive comfort for all your toil and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and suffering for the king, by the way. And in that place you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One. For there you shall see him as he is. There also you shall serve him continually with praise and shouting and thanksgiving, whom you desire to serve in the world, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing, your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the mighty one. There you shall enjoy your friends again that are gone thither before you, and there you shall with joy receive even everyone that follows into the holy place after you. Does that sound good? Read the rest, man. It's great. It's a fiction, but it's all based on the Bible. Something like that's going to happen. You're going to die. And there's going to be angels there. Myriads of myriads in ten thousands times ten thousands. Who have all existed since creation and all witness all the history of the world. And you can get to know each one of them. Imagine how long that's going to take. So who'd you watch over? What God have you do? Where were you when the Red Sea happened? And they all crossed over on dry land. Think about it, regardless of whether or not you have an angelic escort in the presence of Christ, you will spend eternity with angels and it's going to be really fun. Another critical ministry of angels to believers is helping to communicate the word of God. Stephen, towards the end of his sermon in Acts seven, right before he's stoned by the unbelieving Jews speaks to them and says, you who have received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Think about that. 
It seems that Stephen is speaking of the whole corpus of the Old Testament, though he may just be talking about the, the law of Moses, the five books. Either way, he says it's ordained by angels. That is, angels had some place in communicating the word of God. We see it in certain places, for instance, in the book of Daniel or John on the island of Patmos. They received revelation and angels were there to help explain things and communicate. But it seems beyond that even that angels hold a significant place in human authors writing down the word of God. And we don't know, you know, if they're involved in the whole process of inspiration, you know, and it says men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Um, we don't, it seems that maybe angels were somehow involved in that. We don't know. It just says it was ordained by angels. So the reason you have a Bible is because angels were part of bringing this book to you. Isn't that amazing? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, we kind of have the general all-purpose job description for angels in one verse. Hebrews chapter 1. And in Hebrews 1, uh, the author in the previous context has just talked about Jesus, who is better than the angels. And now that he's mentioning angels, he just makes this comment in verse 14 of chapter 1. And says, are they not all ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Wrap your mind around that one. Every single angel, all of them, are ministering spirits. And they were created for the express purpose of ministering to unworthy sinners. That is mind-boggling. That is mind-boggling. If you're one who's going to inherit salvation, you have angels ministering to you. You know, I've never seen an angel ministering to me. There are times in my life where I wondered about it. I remember times in seminary being so tired, having, you know, three hours of sleep for four days in a row, having to study or write some paper. I was so brain dead, I couldn't do it. I prayed and all of a sudden I just all perked up and wrote the paper and then crashed. And I always wondered, hmm... Was that just God? Were there angels there? Could you see angels strengthening people? Now, I don't know. I don't know. But what's amazing is, is look at who they serve. Sinners. Weak, sinful, proud, lustful, boastful, covetous sinners. And they minister to us all of our lives. We don't even know their names. But they minister to us. They serve us faithfully, though I'm sure at many times they're pretty disgusted by our behavior and what we say. And yet they minister to us. And they're a great example, aren't they, of humble service to others. They don't don't get any credit. We're never told to talk to them. We're never told to pray to them. And yet they serve us faithfully for the glory of God. And our blessing, and it won't be until we get to heaven where we actually find out who they were and what they did for us. So angels have a significant ministry to believers here on earth. But they also have a ministry in relationship to unbelievers. This is our second point. You remember Exodus chapter 12 verse 23. This is when uh, 
Moses has received instruction about the Passover and he says, guess what? The destroyer, this angel of death is going to come over, sweep through the whole land. And that angel is going to execute all the firstborn of Egypt. Kill them, all of them. And unless you put the blood of a lamb in the doorpost of your house, you're going to die. And that night, the angel went forth and executed the destroying angel. All those people who did not have blood of the lamb on the lintel of their house. In Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 21, the Assyrians were attacking Jerusalem during the, the reign of Hezekiah. They didn't know what to do. They were all worried. The text says, And the Lord sent an angel and destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyrian, Syria. And what's interesting here is 185,000 men died that night. That's pretty serious. I mean, angels are not anyone to trifle with. You can see why the scripture calls them mighty in strength. One of the more fascinating texts is Daniel chapter 10. Turn there. Daniel chapter 10. And Daniel, in the book of Daniel, several occasions, Daniel has visions and he has angelic visitors who enter into his vision to explain things and help him figure out what he's seeing. And one of the angels who appears a couple times in the book in the previous chapters, in chapter 8, verse 16, the age angel Gabriel is called by name helps Daniel understand the meaning of the vision of the ram the goats and little horn then later on in Daniel chapter 9 verse 21 the angel Gabriel also appeals appears to communicate the vision of the 70 weeks here we're just told an angel but most likely it's the angel Gabriel if you remember Gabriel is the one who appeared to Zechariah when he was ministering in the temple to tell him about the birth of John the Baptist, that his wife would give birth to John the Baptist. And remember when Zechariah refused to believe in the word of the angel Gabriel, do you remember what Gabriel said? He said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. You know, and because you haven't believed, you're going to be deaf and mute. What's interesting is if you look in Revelation chapter 8 verse 2, which we don't have time to go there, it tells us that there are seven angels who are appointed to stand in the presence of God. Gabriel is one of those angels. And so Gabriel's telling Zachariah, listen, pal, now I stand in the presence of God and I left my post to come down here to you to tell you a message and you aren't believing it? So Gabriel is a heavy hitter in the Bible. He is the one who also appeared to Mary to tell her that she would give birth to the Messiah. But if you look at Daniel chapter 10 verse 11, Daniel is describing what great Gabriel said to him. And this is what we read. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. And when... He had spoken this word to me. I stood up trembling. And just as a side note, when you read a lot of modern day, you know, accounts of people being visited by angels, there's, there's, there, they seem pretty hokey. I mean, here's Daniel. He's terrified. He's not, oh, hi, an angel. He's terrified. 
he's so terrified that if you look in verse 9 of chapter 10, when he said, I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face. In other words, he fainted and fell on his face. He was so scared. Look at verse 12. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your word. In other words, God heard Daniel's prayer, dispatched Gabriel to speak to Daniel. Verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief prince, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Here, Gabriel tells Daniel that he was sent by God to help Daniel out. But then he was prevented or withstood by the prince of Persia, which apparently is another angelic force, a demonic angelic force. Apparently, Satan has appointed certain demons over certain areas. And in this case, this prince of Persia, as he is called, withstood Gabriel so that he couldn't come to minister to Daniel. But then, da-da-da-da, Michael shows up. And whenever you look in the scripture, Michael is super angel. Uh, if you look at Jude 9, Michael is described as the archangel. When Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 describes the rapture of the church... Paul says the Lord will descend from heaven with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. Michael is an archangel. He is one of the most powerful angels, apparently, that exists. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us that Michael is the great prince who stands over to guard the people of Israel during their captivity. He is the appointed watchman of the people of God. And he's guarding them during their captivity. So it was this angel that then was dispatched to free up Gabriel who was being withstood by this other demonic force called the Prince of Persia. Revelation 12 to 7 tells us that Michael leads the heavenly angels in battle against Satan and his angels during the tribulation when they are defeated and permanently cast down to earth. And so there is this war waging in heaven. And the war in heaven is a war among angels and demons who are in turn influencing the world of men. Of course, demons, as we're going to learn when we get to that section of our study, mostly work through unbelievers to do their bidding. But if you look down at Daniel chapter 10, verse 20, we learn a little bit more. The angel is finishing up with Daniel. And in verse 20, we read, then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So Michael now is presented as a prince. And apparently speaking of heavenly things going on here, that there is this demon over Persia and a demon over Greece. And that Michael is this, this general leading the angelic hosts in battle against these wars that are waging in heaven. Now, I don't know if you ever think of that. You never read about that in the paper. 
but you read about it in the Bible. All of this is unseen. Humans never peer into these things, and yet it's happening right now and has happened. How do we know this? Well, turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is talking to the Ephesians and he is closing up his book with his final exhortations and he wants to remind them, give them some final exhortation, remind them of where the battle is. I don't know if you've ever uh, tried reading your Bible and been distracted. You ever have that happen or is that just me? You know, you want to just read your Bible. You keep thinking about everything but the Bible or you want to pray and you keep thinking about everything but what you're trying to pray for. But it never happens when you read the paper. It never happens when you're reading your favorite magazine. It never happens when you're watching TV. But whenever you're engaged in a spiritual pursuit that is commanded, that is essential, constant distraction. You ever wonder why that is? Well, let's find out why. Look at verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places. Think about that. He doesn't say we might be in the battle. He says our present, ongoing, continuing battle is not against men, but it's actually against the demonic forces that are working and using those men to accomplish their evil designs. And we learn from Daniel that the holy angels are also involved in striving and battling against those things that are going on in the heavenly places. Now, as we shall learn, demons work through unbelievers. Unbelievers are described as of their father, the devil, doing the works of their father, the devil, held captive by Satan to do his will. The scriptures describe them as as unbelievers, as um, Satan working in the sons of disobedience. And so unbelievers live every moment as pawns of demonic forces, and they don't even know it. They think they're in control. They think they're you know, autonomous, that they're doing whatever they want, whenever they want. But actually, they're deluded, they're deceived, and they're being led by demonic forces, and they don't know it. But holy angels are working so that the demons, so Satan and his angels, do not go outside the bounds of God's parameter. And what's really fascinating is this. Have you ever... Have you ever wondered why, you know, we have to go witness to people and why God wants us to pray and things like that? And God asks us to do all these things. You think, well, why doesn't God do it? I mean, he's all powerful. You know, just do it. You know, why work at trying to clean up the earth when God can just clean? And the same thing is true of angels. Why doesn't God just win the battle? Why does he dispatch angels And have them fight in the heavenly realms when he himself can do it. Well, this is why. Because it is a privilege to serve God. He doesn't need us. But he gives us the privilege of serving him. The same is true of angels. 
He gives angels the privilege of waging war on his behalf. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 39 and 40, Jesus talks about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And if you remember the parable, the, the world is described as the field and somebody goes out and plants the seed. At nighttime, the enemy comes and sows all these tares among the wheat. The tares are weeds, basically. And Jesus, describing how this happened when he's interpreting the parable, says the enemy, this is verse 39 of Matthew 13, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is at the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. So not only will believers have angelic escorts take them in their mortal bodies to Jerusalem to meet their king at the end of the tribulation. So unbelievers will be executed and carried into hell by angels, holy angels. They work for both believers and unbelievers as escort services. Not only that, not only they involved in the general execution of God, of unbelievers at the end of the age, at the second coming of Christ, sometimes angels are sent to specific unbelievers to execute them. One example we have of this is in Acts chapter 12, verses 21 through 23. After Peter was miraculously released from prison by an angel, Herod was furious and had the soldiers who were assigned to guard him executed because they let Peter go. He then traveled to Caesarea Philippi and there had to address some people from Tyre and Sidon. And this is what we read. Acts 12, 21 and following. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory, God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. That is the biblical account. That is the accurate account of what happened. I'm sure from the people who knew Herod that it was just, um, you know, he just happened to get worms and die from it. God says he dispatched an angel and the angel executed God's judgment upon him. What's amazing is, is we actually have an extra biblical account of this very thing. Josephus, an unbelieving Jewish historian at the time, writes this, quote, But now Herod's distemper greatly increased upon him after severe manner. And this by God's judgment upon him for his sins, for a fire glowed in him slowly, which did not so much appear to touch outwardly as it augmented his pains inwardly. For it brought upon him a vehement appetite to eating, which he could not avoid to supply with one sort of food or the other. His entrails were also exulcerated, and the chief violence of his pains lay in his colon. Then aqueous and transparent liquor settled itself about his feet, and in like manner afflicted him at the bottom of his belly. Nay, further, his privy members were putrefied and produced worms. And when he sat upright, he had difficulty breathing, which was very loathsome on account of the stench of his breath and the quickness of its returns. He had also convulsions in all parts of his body, which increased in strength to an insufferable degree, end quote. Pretty bad, huh? And history tells us, Josephus goes on to say that he tried everything to get better. He was rich. He tried every possible cure and no cure would work. 
Nothing would work. Finally, he gathered all of his friends and gave them huge gifts in order to try and get them to like him before he died. He executed his son Antipater. Then he died a slow, painful, agonizing death being eaten by worms from the inside out. And mark it, an angel carried out the judgment. An angel did it. Finally, we read that angels will be witnesses to the eternal punishment of unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. John in Revelation chapter 14 verses 9 and 10 speaking of those who worship the beast of the tribulation period who is the Antichrist, writes, Then another angel, a third one, followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Angels who for millennia have fought against unbelievers, have fought against Satan and his demons, will at the end of the days see all unbelievers, Satan, his demons, the Antichrist, the false prophet, be cast into the lake of fire, and they will be first-hand witnesses of their evil deeds, and they will see them judged for eternity. The Apostle Paul speaks of angels in relation to the judgment of unbelievers in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here he's talking about how, how believers are, are afflicted by unbelievers. And so Paul is going to give a little encouragement to believers in the midst of their affliction. And he says this. Notice how he encourages them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Here again, the angels are described as these mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution. To those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In other words, they are going to participate in the judgment of unbelievers at the end of the age. They are described like they are described in 2 Kings 6. If you remember, we, we looked at that text last week where Elisha's servant has his eyes open. And what does he see in the hillsides? Horses and chariots of fire all around. Well... Here they are, mighty angels in flaming fire. The symbol of judgment. So, wow, we've looked at a lot of stuff about angels this morning. So what does this have to do with you? Well, first of all, no, we haven't looked at everything yet. But here are some things you can think about as you leave today. Some practical applications. If you've never thanked God and praised God for creating angels to minister to you, you might want to try that. Because he has. 
And they're probably a greater blessing to you than you really know. Secondly, you need to follow the example of holy angels whose sole purpose is to obey the voice of God and worship him. We need to do what they're doing. They do it perfectly. We're getting there. Three, remember that as you battle temptation, as you resist evil, as you seek to obey Christ, God has angelic helpers behind the scenes helping you achieve that purpose. Four, be thankful for the part angels have played in giving you your Bible. The Bible is ordained by angels. Five, know that in the future you will see angelic friends face to face. You will get to know them by name. You will get to learn from them. And then you will serve them and worship them with Christ forever and ever. Six, be awakened to the fact that this world is passing away. And what is real, what is eternal is going on behind the scenes. And there are angels, unnumberable angels, battling, waging war as the end of the age draws near. They will be playing a part in your rescue as believers and in the judgment of unbelievers. And finally, if you are an unbeliever, if you have rejected Christ, then you need to be afraid. You know, there are a lot of people who say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, do you love Christ? Well, I'm a Christian. Do you live for Christ? Well, I'm a Christian. Do you seek to obey God in every area of your life? That is what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who has been changed by the grace of God. They're imperfect, but they're striving after holiness. They're striving to please God. They're serving God. They're praying to God. They're studying God's word because they want to know what God wants them to do. And if you're out there and you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I'm willing to come to church every once in a while. I'm willing to read my Bible every once in a while and pray every once in a while. But God's not, I I can't give him my whole life. Then you're an unbeliever. You are deluded. And you may think you're in control, but you're not. Satan is controlling you. You are doing his will. You're marching in his army. And you need to realize your life is in danger. There are no angels helping you. They are against you because you were against them. And you need to repent of your sins. You need to give your life to Christ. You need to trust only in Jesus Christ to save you. He died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty. That you deserved. And then he was buried and rose again on the third day. He now sits at the throne at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he commands the angelic forces that are around him. And he is the Lord that you will stand before. Either as a believer or an unbeliever. Make sure it's a believer. Give your heart to him today. Turn from your sins today. Receive Christ today. And don't delay. Let God's grace transform your life so that you too can have reason to rejoice when you see, in fact, that God's angels have been working on your behalf, not for your destruction, but for your good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great truths we have learned in your word. What a blessing it is. 
how amazing it is how we can read the Bible and never even notice all of these things about angels. But there is so much there. And Father, how thrilling and just stunning it is to even think of these things. It is so far beyond us. So outside of our experience. So far beyond what we know living here on earth. And yet your word tells us many things about angels. And we need to believe it. We need to know it's true. We need to live like it's true. And Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you. Father, maybe who has been pretending to love you, pretending to be a Christian, professing to be a Christian with their mouth, but with their deeds denying you, loving their sin really more than Christ. I pray that right now you would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth that they would commit in their heart right now to follow Jesus. They would cry out to you to save them, that they would admit that It's not of works, it's only by your grace. And in believing in you, they would be transformed. And Father, you would begin to minister to them from now on until you come back with your ministering spirits that you have created to do us good. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.